0: Well, we're going to continue this morning studying through uh, to gain an understanding of the Lord's table of communion and that particular ordinance that God has given the church. And so this morning, our task is to look at uh, the elements, the the practice for the church and the elements, what they represent, uh, and the significance that they may have for you and I as believers. Because they are significant, even though simple. Uh, obviously, what they're representing is the key thing to be understood there. So, the Lord's table, communion, the practice of the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. The when and the how is is kind of what I envision talking about when we talk about the practice of it, what we do. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you encounter Paul, and he's instructing the Corinthian church, Corinthian church is full of issues. They have a lot of problems within their church, and there's severe problems in, in some respects. They're very condoning of sin. Uh, they're really taking advantage of, of one another, and here as they come to the Lord's table, as they share communion as a group, what we find is that there are there is uh, drunkenness and uh, gluttony, all of these things happening as and the excuse is that here we are coming together over the Lord's table. And so uh, Paul is rebuking them. And in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about communion, he's talking about uh, the significance of what it means and how we ought to uh, honor it. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But in the practice, let's read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. <clears throat> Paul says, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The word blessed, so we see this. And if you go read through the gospel accounts where you find the same things happening, Jesus himself taking these, and and if you have one of those red letter Bibles, you're going to find this. Paul is saying, this is what I've received from Jesus Christ himself. And when when we look at those things and we see what's happening there, he takes the bread, and it says he blessed it. In other words, the the word there in the Greek is is uh, the word that we take our English word "eulogize" from, and we usually associate that with a funeral. When we eulogize somebody, we talk about them, but what it means is to give many thanks, to give many thanks. So here is Jesus Christ, and he's taking this bread. Uh, that's that, that we're going to talk about in more detail in just a moment, and and he gives many thanks for it. He eulogizes this bread and the cup, this communal cup that they end up passing around. Uh, while we may not practice it exactly, I don't know that there's any magic per se in passing the communal cup, other than the flu will run through your church and you know. So we may have a slightly different application but the idea is the same, right? We're going to give thanks for what has happened, for what is being memorialized in this particular ordinance. Now he says, as often as you do this, I apologized last week and I still apologize. There is no excuse for for the, the delay from the last time that we had communion as a church. There's no excuse. But there is no requirement that says you will do this once a month or every Sunday or quarterly or whenever. It just says when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So there's no standard regarding how often. The only standard that Jesus applies that Paul here addresses in 1 Corinthians is the standard of what happens in our heart during communion and i would just add to that leading up to in preparation for what we don't want to be is like the corinthian church that is being corrected here we don't want to be like them who are they're engaged in drunkenness and gluttony and and they're selfish if you read through this this chapter uh they're selfish as part of their quote-unquote celebration of the lord's table there, there, there are some that are not even getting to part, partake, and there's others that, that are eating all of it, and it's, it's a mess. And so we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be those who are just coming with the idea that, that we're just going through the motions, that this is something we do by road. Just, we go to church because that's what you do, or we take communion, or you read your Bible because that's what you do. Those are rags of righteousness. Right? And I use that term on purpose because Jesus, Jesus, God said in the book of Isaiah, Jesus, God, same, right? But, but still incorrect. He said that your righteousnesses, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So we do those things. And when we do them for the sole purpose of either meriting favor with God or doing it simply because that's what you're supposed to do, we've missed the point. And then same with communion. The same with coming to the Lord's table and taking those simple elements, bread and juice or wine, whatever you choose to use, and and, and taking those, if we just go through the motions, we've missed the point. We talked about the purpose last week, and the purpose is to cause remembrance, to bring us uh, and to encourage our faith and to solidify our faith in what Christ has done. To bring to remembrance not only our sinfulness, but what Jesus has finished. It's a celebration of the finished
1: work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. And if we're doing it by road, if we're just going
0: through the motions, we've missed it. He talks about in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul continues on. Let's read verses 27 through 29. He says, Wherefore, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily <clears throat> shall be guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now I want to talk about this worth that's being discussed here, because I think that there's, people get this out of, out of whack let's talk about a couple of things. Number 1, this is the only place that this particular word is used. This Greek word is only used in verse 27 and 29 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want you to note that even in the English, right? It's an ad, it's an adverb. Or excuse me, it's an adjective, not an adverb. This is something that is descriptive of the way we come It's not descriptive of what we are doing, or that'll become more clear, okay? (laughs) What it means is in an improper manner. What it means is coming in an improper manner. The The Corinthian church was coming in an improper manner. They were coming with the intent of going through the motions. They were coming with the intent of, I can get out of this, whatever, get out of this. They weren't coming with the purpose that God has established for the Lord's table, which is remembrance remember that our worth as as Christians in God's eyes, our worth has already been established. It's already been established. So for you and I as believers, we are brought into the family of God and nothing's changing now. We're going to talk about that in a moment. That's sure and it's secure. And anyone who is outside of the family of God Their worth is established as well. Not only does the Bible say that they were created in the image of God, but it also says that Jesus Christ would die for them in the midst of their sin. There is great worth in people, and God sees that worth.
1: We are to examine the way in which we come to the Lord's table. Am I doing this in remembrance? Am I taking the opportunity that is
0: here and purposefully set before me to understand and to to meditate upon, think through what Jesus Christ has finished? Or am I coming flippantly, something that is done by
1: rote? This is done in memorial of the finished work of Christ. Jump with
0: me to verse 29 again, because as he talks about this this unworthily coming to the Lord's table, he defines what that means, and he does so by linking it to discerning. He says, for he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, that word discerning simply means to uh, make distinction, right? I can come to Anyone's house, I can have a meal at anyone's table. I can and, and we probably would fall into this more at our own house, right? But I'm going to sit down, and every meal is largely the same. It's not a special meal. We set aside a certain certain holidays or events, and those are significant and special. We we seek to make them such. Whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner or at our house, birthday breakfast. We do something to distinguish that, to discern it from every other meal. And that's the same idea here. When we come to the Lord's table, this isn't something that is just like everything else. This is something that is different and special and significant and is discerned or made distinguishable from other events that we might partake in at church. We may enter in, and and let me just throw this out there for your consideration. This isn't limited
1: per se to just a church. But we're going to distinguish this. And so
0: when we're talking about coming unworthily, am I coming, viewing this like the Corinthians that is just another meal? Just something where we're going to come together and we're going we're to take the bread of the cup. This is just a regular part of the service, which is the danger, by the way, of doing communion all the time. Right, you go to some churches, and every single service is the same. And, and there's a lot of things about our church service that is the same. I mean, we, we do worship at the end, which is unique, but we always do worship at the end rather than at the beginning. There, there are set things that we establish to be important, and we go through them. And by doing it all the time, sometimes we lose and we forget the significance of what is being done. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we have this communion service next Sunday as part of our uh, looking forward to and and expectation of the resurrection. We're initiating something that we want to participate in regularly. But we are initiating something that we don't want to ever lose its significance. So we have to be watchful about that. We have to consider that, that this discernment, this distinction between this ordinance, this celebration of what Jesus has finished on the cross doesn't lose its uniqueness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Those who would come unworthily are described in Scripture, though we may not see them immediately. They're described in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's read verse 18 first. It says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So somebody who is outside, to them the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And then if we go to verse 22 in the same chapter, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. So here are those who are unaccepting of the gospel message. Here is what Jesus Christ has done. Here is how it is symbolized. This is how we celebrate and we remember what he has finished. And to those who are outside of it, it may appear to be something insignificant. It may appear to be something silly or foolish. Those who would come and they would participate in a church service and they would take of communion, they're not distinguishing it for what it is. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. And this is familiar territory because we've been here, but right, these are those who would suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we find that in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. He says, beginning verse 16: For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That is, is, written, the just shall live by faith. So here we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, and we can sum it up very simply based on what we find in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? That here is Jesus Christ, that he uh, was born of the virgin, that he, that's not in there. He was born of, the vir- of a virgin. That was, <laughs> that was prophesied. Uh, uh, but he died according for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And those, those few points, that very simple message is full of meaning and significance. And then one, there is this need for our sins to be covered, and Jesus Christ was the substitute for that. But not only that, he didn't stay dead, he rose again, confirming, and 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to discuss that, confirming who he was and all that he said he had done. So the wrath of God, it says in 1 Romans 1:18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the, the truth in unrighteousness or suppress it. They don't want to acknowledge it. These, this is a description of those who would come to the table unworthily not distinguishing and not separating it from anything else that they may do to them it may be simply religious practice just like uh just like muslims bowing down and praying toward mecca there would be no distinction in their mind yet we know because we have tasted and seen that the lord is good because we receive salvation as a result of what jesus did on the cross the significance of it there's a discernment and a distinction and that's what's being discussed. In John chapter 3, Jesus himself uh, discussed this. And we, we talk about this a lot because this is, unfortunately, where so much of the world exists today, unwilling to acknowledge not only their sinfulness, but unwilling to acknowledge Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, it says, And this is the condemnation, the light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or exposed. Nobody wants to be seen for what they really are. It's true, and, and the church is criticized for being full of hypocrites, but that is, and it's true, we are hypocrites. We're never going to be perfect in this life. Even in Christ, we won't be perfect. But what the world is unwilling to acknowledge is that their hypocrisy, that they're just as too. I don't want anybody to know about my stuff. And so I never let anybody see it. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he goes on in verse 21. But he that does truth comes to the light and his deeds may be manifest that they were wrought in God. The difference in the distinction that should be made for you and I as believers is that when we sin, when we fail, we should own it and we should seek forgiveness. We should make restitution if necessary. They should encounter something completely different with you and I than they would with anyone else. But these are those who are unwilling to acknowledge those things that are acknowledged and represented in the elements. When we're talking about worth, it's an adverb, not an adjective. It's something that is being done. It is the the way in which we are coming to the table with the expectancy, with the Uh, the distinction of the significance of what is happening. Now, communion for you and I as believers is a sign of community. It's an example of the community that we find within the church or that should be found within the church. In Luke chapter 22, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20. This is a parallel passage. This is Jesus uh, and, and he's giving, uh, he's initiating the first ever communion service. Beginning verse 19, and he took bread and he gave thanks and break it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. And here it is. Jesus is in this upper room celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples. This is something that he is explicitly given to the church, to his disciples,
1: to do in remembrance of him. His body and his blood were broken and shed
0: for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, it says in the next verse, right? That was the purpose. But not everybody is going to receive that. It's only effective for those who receive it by faith. And so therefore, the Lord's table, the celebration of communion, is only for believers. It is a sign of, the, uh, of community that we have with one another. Jesus instituted it specifically with believers, with his disciples. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians
1: chapter 10. Let's look at verses 16 and 17.
0: Paul is here again, addressing addressing some of the concerns, some of the issues that we find in the Corinthian church surrounding their celebration of communion, and he says, "The cup of blessing in verse sixteen, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ?" Now, word communion—that's the same word that is typically translated fellowship. It's koinonia, right? That's the intimate connection. Uh, for lack of better terms, the familial family connection that we find within the body of Christ. And it doesn't exist with those who are outside of that community, with outside of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that we should be unwelcoming or that we should somehow disdain, oh man, they're just outside of the church world. No, 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 that's wrong. And the Bible addresses that. Right, we don't make a distinction. God's not a respecter of persons. Jesus Christ came to save the entire world. We've been commissioned to share the gospel with the world. We're open and receptive
1: to whomever may walk through the door because is it their day of salvation? I don't know, but the Lord does. And we
0: misrepresent all, everything that Christ came to accomplish if we are distinguishers of persons, right? This person's somehow, in my estimation, unworthy
1: or not good enough or whatever. We look at them differently than God would look at them, and that's wrong. But as far as
0: you and I and the ordinances that God has given us, remember there's only two, baptism and communion. Baptism is specifically for believers. Communion is also specifically for believers, and it's in part a sign of the community, the, the family that is established in God. We're adopted into his family, given the spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father, as Scripture says. And it's a witness to the world around us, where it should be. It should be something. Now, just because communion is only for believers, it doesn't mean that we you know, hide away and they never get to see it. I think it's a key opportunity. In First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, we read it earlier, but he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we are, we may have a communion service, there may be people here who are unbelievers who are not adopted in the family of Christ by by a family of God by faith through Jesus Christ yet, but they see what's happening and they have opportunity to witness the elements that are being discussed, all of those things that are happening here as a result of remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ. Trust me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 26 excuse me six deuteronomy six verse 20 now in deuteronomy chapter six we we find for you and i and this is we think about it in parental terms right these are the things that we as parents do but it isn't just we as parents this is something that we do as witnesses so in verse 20 of deuteronomy chapter six When thy son asked thee in the time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. The Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, and he, uh, and, and he has as he has commanded us. So right here, when your son asks you, this is what you tell him. This is why God has established that. That's why he has instituted these things. When, when somebody witnesses from outside looking in, a communion service and they see and they hear what is happening and what is being discussed and this is what the elements represent and all of those things it is an opportunity for us to say listen do you understand what this means just as it was an opportunity for Israel when their son asked why do we do this this is an opportunity to share the gospel in a way that, that is symbolized right in front of them so let's talk about the elements Let's talk about those, those things, the, the bread that's broken and the cup that, uh, that is shared. We're not going to share a cup. I'm sorry. I'm not really sorry. <laughs> We're not going to pass a communal cup. I don't think that that makes sense. Nor do I think it's necessary. I don't think that what Jesus was trying to do institute is a rigid, this is the way thou shall do it. No, as often as you come. Do this and remember it to me the, the, the elements themselves were significant in their representation, so let's talk about that. Okay, the elements, the, the bread first off, it was his body broken for us. First Corinthians chapter 11, and just hold your finger there because we're going to be back and forth. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. We read it earlier, but let's read it again. For I have received of the Lord that which I had delivered, that the Lord Jesus, the same night which he, betre- which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he break it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this doing remembrance of me. So he equates the bread, it's symbol, symbolizing his body being broken for us. In Isaiah chapter 53, if you'll turn there with me, we memorize Isaiah 53, 6, but a few verses just before that, Isaiah 53, verses 4, 3 through 4. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go 4 through 5. I have it in my notes, 4 through 3. I, I don't know. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So we have this description, thousands of years before Jesus was ever born, of what he was going to accomplish and what, the, what that sacrifice of his body was going to bring about for you and I. But the description here that he has borne our griefs, and yet, while this was all for us, when we looked at him, we esteemed him as smitten by God. In other words, Jesus hanging on the cross there, people looked up, he must have been some kind of a sinner because otherwise he wouldn't be being crucified. Yet here he was, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, being made sin, being representative of all, all of our sin and received punishment for all of our sin on the cross physically so that we might be declared His righteousness. And it continues on and it talks about His wounds for our transgression, for our willing sinfulness. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement, the correction of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are
1: healed now jesus broke the bread and so we remember that we remember that it's
0: symbolic of i mean prophetically right and we understand that even practically that Jesus' body wasn't broken not a bone of his body was broken but the symbolism is still there and still poignant in that this is something that was happened and done. His flesh was torn. His, his, all of those
1: things happening as a result. And we symbolize that by the breaking of that bread. In First Corinthians chapter 11, does it say in 1 Corinthians 11?
0: This, it talks about Jesus' body being delivered for us, that it wasn't taken from him, but it was delivered. It says in yeah, first Corinthians chapter eleven, this was this was interesting to discover through study, but it says that uh, in the same way that he was betrayed. Now interestingly enough, if you look up that Greek word and then you you look at it where else it's used in Scripture, that's the only time that you find it translated betrayed. Everywhere else in Scripture, especially in Paul's writings, it's translated delivered. Jesus was delivered. Right? So if I ask the question, and this is significant because if I ask the question, who betrayed Jesus, all of the Sunday school graduates are going to say Judas. We all know the answer. Even if you're not a graduate of Sunday school, you probably know that Jesus sold them, or Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. But when I ask the question, who delivered
1: Jesus? That's a much more significant question, isn't it? Because at the very least, Jesus delivered
0: himself, but ultimately we know that God, in his sovereignty, delivered Jesus on our behalf. Come with me to Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And this is the same word. Says, speaking of Jesus Christ is who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. He was delivered for our offenses, delivered to be the sacrifice for our sinfulness. And then he was raised again, it says, for our justification, the declaration of sinlessness before God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we find another similar usage so speaking of god it says that he spared not his own son but delivered him up for us how shall not he how shall he not with him also freely give us all things so here is god delivering his son on our behalf so that we might break his body so that we may tear his flesh so that he may endure and agonize over Being made sin, separated from the Father as a result in receiving the wrath of God, the punishment, so that we could be declared
1: righteous. Jesus was delivered. He he was betrayed, yes, but he was delivered on our behalf. Two two more references here quickly. John chapter 2.
0: Verse 18 through 22. Jesus is here being asked, What is the sign that you're going to give us? Because the Jews were looking for a sign. Uh, and not only that, but they were trying to trap Jesus. There, there was no real faith involved in this question. But they ask him, What is the sign in verse 18? did you show us seeing that thou doest these things and jesus answered in verse 19 instead of them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up okay? they're thinking of the temple over here where we offer our sacrifices where we do all those things this magnificent building this solomon built it was right this is the, the herod ultimately re- this is what they're thinking this physical structure and they respond to that and they say listen 46 years was this temple and building And that will rear it up in three days? They're thinking it's impossible. Yet it says here in verse 21, He spake of the temple His body. When therefore He was risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said unto them, and they believed the Scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus here, He's not talking about a physical temple. He's talking about the temple of His body being broken and shed, enduring death on our behalf. John chapter 6, for just a moment, we're going to move on to the cup, but John chapter 6, verses 33 through 35. Jesus is here speaking, and, and he's discussing the manna that
1: came down from heaven, the bread that they ate, and manna simply means, what is it? the food that they needed while they wandered in the wilderness verse 33 for the bread of god is
0: he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world jesus is telling them listen that bread that god provided for israel was simply a picture of me who has really come then they said unto him i lord live ever lord evermore give us this bread it's kind of like in john chapter four the woman on the well who who says listen if i can drink one time and never thirst again. That's what I want. That seems really efficient. But Jesus was talking about meeting the spiritual need. And the same thing is happening here. They're they're taking what he's saying in a spiritual aspect and converting it in their minds and hearts to a physical need. And listen, we would, yeah, we would sure like to never be hungry again. That sounds fantastic. And Jesus said in the verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. And he's not talking about physical hunger or physical thirst. He's talking about the parallel of our spiritual need. He continues on. Jump with me to verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. He's furthering this connection. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. That bread from heaven, that's not what we're talking about. That's something different. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then Jesus used took that same picture, that same understanding. When
1: he instituted the Lord's supper, he broke bread, representative of his body. Second, the cup. And probably less significantly
0: the cup and more significantly what was in the cup. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the new testament in my blood this do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so he takes the cup uh that very likely most likely had wine in it and blesses it gives thanks once again but that that wine that is in that cup is representative of his shed blood it's representative of his shed blood. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I want to I make this case. I may not have to make a case. Jesus himself said it, but we want to understand what he's saying. Romans chapter 5, verse 15 first. It says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ has abounded unto many. Right, so here's a reference all the way back to Adam, who sinned, rebelled against God in the garden. Therefore, all men are sinners as a result. Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no excuse for anyone. We stand before God condemned as a result of our sinfulness. And just as that one sinful act Plunged man and the world, all of creation, into sinful existence. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, one shedding of blood, provides permanent forgiveness of sin. That's what's being discussed here. Jump with me down to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. By, this, by the shedding of Jesus' blood, many shall be made righteous. Now, it implied in all of this, and, and, and I don't want to miss it, because it's, here's Jesus, and he's celebrating Passover when he institutes this ceremony. But here he is, Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist would say in John one twenty nine: Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and all throughout the old testament when you look at the sin sacrifices that were that were brought right it's it's almost exclusively it's not always but almost exclusively this male lamb and it's spotless in other words it's it's it, that's representative of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and if we look even at just exodus chapter 12 by itself where we find the passover the last plague on egypt before God delivers them out of that country. You bring this lamb into your house and you live with it for a period of time, just enough that it's going to be
1: heartbreaking when you have to shed the blood. And not only do you have to shed the blood of this little lamb, this
0: spotless lamb, this male lamb, all of this being representative and looking forward to foreshadowing
1: what Jesus Christ is, but you have to apply the blood. You take it and you apply it
0: on both sides and on the top of the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes through is Egypt, and he sees the blood applied to the door, he passes over that house, and the firstborn in that firstborn son in that household is spared. Hence, Passover.
1: And just for just like you and I, when God comes through and he sees the blood of Christ applied to us, he passes over. We're declared righteous. In Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood,
0: the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Just as those animals that were brought and sacrificed were representative and temporarily covered the sinfulness of those people, Jesus Christ in his once shedding blood permanently covered the sinfulness of all of us who would receive it by faith. That's where we receive redemption.
1: In the book of Hebrews, we find that uh, Hebrews chapter 9, where we
0: most clearly see as a book, rather, we most clearly see the connection between the Old Testament foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and I don't think I'm going to read the whole passage because it's, it's through the end of the chapter, but... Um, Beginning verse 11 says, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Right. So that's a significant statement because and it goes on to describe that here, these Old Testament priests, when they brought the sacrifice on the day of atonement for the people. When they brought that sacrifice, they first off had to go make sacrifice for themselves. Because they were just as sinful as everyone else. And so after they made their sacrifices, they would bring a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they did this every single year. They did this every single year because it was never sufficient. Yet here we have Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, and it says that he once offered his blood. One time, one offering, complete and and 100% fulfilling
1: the covering of our sinfulness. Obtained eternal redemption for us. And if you go
0: through and you read the rest of this chapter, you have that illustration clearly painted for us. Jump over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That was representative. It wasn't something that God had designed to forgive their sins. There was a looking forward to of Jesus Christ coming to be the perfect offering. And he continues on. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering. Now would not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Jump down with me to verse 10, Hebrews 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. It's finished. And the good news is that for you and I, here in the cup, the shedding of his blood, this new covenant, this relationship that is established between, because he says it's the blood of a New Testament shed for you. Right? It's the new covenant. We look at the old covenants that God made in the Old Testament. He made covenant with David. He made covenant with Abraham. He made covenants with, with Noah. We looked at these in Sunday school not that long ago. These different covenants and how they foreshadowed this eternal covenant that God makes with his people. And is so keen, so zealous to convey the importance and the significance and the eternal effectiveness of this covenant that he would shed the blood
1: of his own son to confirm it. The cup, the, the, the wine, the juice, whatever you use is representative of the
0: shed blood of Jesus Christ. Of the redemption, the forgiveness of sin that is made as a result there. As you read through Hebrews 9 and 10,
1: you find that there is no purging, no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Jesus Christ shed his blood on our behalf. Just a few more, few more points to make this morning.
0: You and I as believers, as we, as we come to the Lord's table, and I want to make this clear, that there, there is no yoke of bondage here. In other words, there's, there are no works implied in communion. But it, so this is linked to that worthiness, because there are those who will take that, those who come unworthily, and somehow your life is in shambles, and so therefore you're not qualified to take communion. Listen, we weren't saved by works. We're not going to maintain our salvation by works. And to say that we are somehow unqualified, we're unworthy to take communion, to remember what Christ has done for us, even though Christ would do that while we were yet sinners, is to say that there are works that we have to maintain not only for salvation, but to continue to be saved. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Right? There's This new covenant established isn't based on the works that we're doing. It's based on what Jesus Christ has finished. That's what it's about. Our righteousness is founded in Him and in Him completely. It isn't anything we can offer or bring.
1: In Acts chapter 15,
0: as you go through and you look at that, in Acts chapter 15, there were those who were telling uh, about 7 through 11, there were those who were telling them, listen, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. And we're making a parallel here because at some point, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's circumcision or tithing or reading your Bible enough or your Bible memory or whatever it may be, Somebody's going to say, listen, if you're not doing that, you're just not really a Christian. You're not measuring up. You are unqualified to participate in communion. And in Acts chapter 15, what happened is Paul stood against and resisted these Judaizers who were putting people back under this yoke of bondage, so much so that he says, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to get a determination from the rest of the apostles. Where do we stand on this? And the apostle was like, hey, listen, no. It's not by works that we're saved. We're not going to put anybody under a yoke of bondage. It doesn't excuse us as believers. We have responsibility to represent Jesus Christ, to live in accordance with His his plans and purpose, with His ways, and not our own. We talked about that last week, right? That here as we contemplate, we meditate on what Jesus has finished, it should motivate us, it should bring us to an understanding that this personal pursuit of holiness that we're going to try to honor him. That we're going to live life on his terms as living sacrifices. But what it doesn't mean is that when I don't get my Bible memory done or that I don't uh, read enough scripture or I I don't pray enough or I didn't tithe enough or whatever it may
1: be, that I'm somehow disqualified or out of favor with God. That doesn't happen. Turn with me to Galatians chapter
0: 3. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing this very kind of legalism. This works-based, this performance-based idea of relationship with God. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. He asks this simple question. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect
1: by the flesh? We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to to merit it, to be worthy of it.
0: Yet Jesus Christ did everything. Romans 5.8, God commended his love towards us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, listen, get your act together and then this will be effective for you. He said, no, 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 no. While you're yet a sinner, I'm going to do everything necessary. And while you're yet a sinner, you can accept that. And, and you know what? Continuing on after we accept Christ, because we're still going to struggle with
1: sin, just like Paul did and, and he talked about it in Romans chapter 7. He says, you're still mine. His grace doesn't have a
0: limit. There isn't somewhere where we draw a line in the sand and boy, once you get on that side, God is done with you.
1: It's not by works or righteousnesses that we have done, it's by what he has finished.
0: Three more references, we're going to pray and be done this morning. Romans chapter 10. Turn there with me, Romans chapter 10. Listen, I'll tell you right now, it is not Romans chapter 10, because there's not that many
1: verses in this chapter.
0: It's John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 27. Now, Jesus is here. This is the parable of the good shepherd. Jesus is talking about his sheep, his family, those who have accepted him by faith and come into the family of God, into the fold of God. And that's what he's discussing here. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Right? There's a statement here about the security that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to, first of all, steal us from God. Nobody's going to pull us out of His hand. Nobody's going to cause us to stumble in such a way that we would somehow lose favor with Him. But I also want you to realize that no, that we ourselves could never remove ourselves from His concern. To do so would be saying, listen, I am greater than God Himself.
1: That I could get myself out of His grasp once I'm in it. And that should be some comfort for us because we all struggle with sin. We are not perfect.
0: And we think to ourselves, boy, I've really blown it this time. God would never consider me now. Yet here he just tells us there's nothing you can do that will remove you from my favor. Turn with me to Romans chapter five again.
1: Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. It says, moreover, the law
0: entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Let's just pause there for a moment. Here we have the law, right? It's the clarification of sinfulness. God uses it as a schoolmaster, it says, a tutor to show us how sinful we are. That's all it says right here. The law doesn't make sin greater, it just clarifies what is sin. But more significant than that, it says, where sin abounded, right? when we're completely faced with our ineffectiveness and our ability to be favorable before God, to be considered righteous by God because we cannot do that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, He says, where that happens, which is every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, including
1: you and including me, he says grace did much more abound. His grace doesn't know a limit. It doesn't know a limit. It doesn't matter what we've done in our past. It doesn't matter what we do
0: tomorrow he doesn't say, listen, that's too great for me to cover. As bad as it may be, as sinful as we may consider ourselves and as honest as we may be about it, because that's what we're doing when we realize our sin and we talk about it in such terms, we're
1: just being honest about who we are and where we're really at. No matter how bad that is, grace does much more abound, it says. It is
0: limitless. And he continues on, that it, as sin has reigned unto death, Right? The wages of sin is death. What we earn by our sinfulness is death. That's what it's talking about. But it's not simply a physical death. Yes, physical death is a result of sin. But he's talking about that spiritual death, that separation from God, where, where we talk about hell. And it's, and it's eternal punishment, consequence for sinfulness. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That salvation, is that we talk about redemption and being pulled out of the flame, so to speak, as we talk about being forgiven, as we talk about all of those things, that's what's happening here. That Jesus Christ, by the shedding of His blood and by the breaking of His body, by faith in His atonement, His death in our place, and the exchange of righteousness that happens as a result, God looks at you and I as we exercise faith, as we believe what Jesus has done, and he simply says, listen, you are righteous. He declares us to be so. That's what justification is. And it's a one-time act. It's a one-time declaration that's unchangeable. When God says something, it's, I mean, it is as good as done. This is the creator of the universe who said, let there be light, and there was, and he spoke everything that exists into existence from nothing,
1: when he declares you or me to be righteous, it's so. One more, Romans chapter 4, verse 21 through 22. Here, Paul
0: is writing about Abraham. And he's using Abraham as an illustration. And I want to close with this application for you and I this morning. Because when we talk about communion, as I said, there are those who will misappropriate this. They will make it a standard. There's a performance standard to be
1: favorable before God. And so, therefore, we can't participate. That nowhere exists in Scripture. And so, are we going to operate
0: in faith like Abraham did, trusting that God has done everything, finished all of it in Jesus Christ? Or are we not? Romans chapter 4, verse 21, 22. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised,
1: he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness.
0: Right? We talk about all these different places, whether it's in Romans chapter 10, where we, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God is raised from the dead, and thou shalt be saved. And while that is absolutely true, this is saying significantly the same thing, right? But maybe in a simpler form. And maybe in a form that is a little more understandable in relation to communion. That Abraham, fully persuaded, in other words, he's unwavering in his faith. He trusts that whatever God has said is 100% going to happen. And you look at Abraham's life, right, we see the ups and downs. We see the, well, gee, maybe we're not, we're getting pretty old. Maybe we're not going to have a child like God promised, so let's come up with our own plan. There were ups and downs. Abraham, though he is here being
1: referenced as the father of faith, wasn't perfect, just like we're not perfect but
0: his trust in that in that what god said would come to pass and he had to learn those lessons just like we have to learn those lessons was counted to him as righteousness it was imputed to him as righteousness and in the same way whether we're believers who are looking at everything that god has done and trusting completely and fully in the finished work of jesus christ in our life and that even though i may fail and struggle I am still acceptable in His sight. I am still His child. I am still in the family of God. Or whether we're on the outside looking in, this is a path to salvation, right? That we trust that whatever God has said He will do, saving you through faith in Jesus Christ, imputing your sinfulness to His Son on the cross so that He might declare you to be righteous without any condition. whether we're on either side of that line, being fully persuaded that He had promised was able to perform it, because He is.
1: And so much more. It was imputed to Him for righteousness. It was counted to our account as righteousness. It can be counted to anyone's account as righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ.
0: Next week, when we have opportunity to come to the Lord's table and and we celebrate communion, part of what we're going to remember, obviously, it's it's Easter. We're going to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus
1: Christ. But
0: leading up to that, we're going to remember, through all of it, our need for Christ. We're also going to remember his sinless life. We're going to remember the sacrifice that he made. And we're going to have a very poignant picture as we look at these simple elements that Jesus has established for us. Right? It's like tying a string on your finger so you don't forget whatever you tied the string on your finger. for. Which is always my problem. I don't know what the string was there for, but for something. He gives us these elements and it tells us this is what it represents so that we might remember. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for his body and his shed blood on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for what that represents. We thank you for the salvation that freely is offered without any condition, the grace, Lord, that is greater than any sin we could ever commit or will commit. We praise you, Lord, for the ordinance, for the the ceremony of communion where we can set before you, Lord, we can in community and fellowship with other believers, and remember what Jesus has done, Lord, and let that motivate us and drive us to living consistently with the profession of our faith. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you, and as uh, we have opportunity for worship this morning, God, we commit that time into
1: your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.